0: Our study leader Dave Wurtson takes us today into the courtroom with the Apostle Paul. Why was he on trial before his Jewish peers? How did he handle a court system riddled with bribery and prideful power plays? What was the issue Paul was willing to give his life for? What we're learning from the Word of God is not just something that interrelates to a beautiful Sunday morning service with beautiful music being sung and played and gathering together with family and friends. The kind of Christianity the Bible presents can walk right into your company with a ruthless, up-and-coming executive that could care less about morality and bribes people under the counter and tries just to get ahead any way that he can or that she can. The Bible knows of people like that. The Bible interacts with people like that. The Bible also interacts with a conservative, secular, political group. For example, a group that just struggles to maintain their power. All they're really concerned about is maintaining the status quo because they've got the reins on the money and on the political influence. And all they're trying to do is to live this life as if there's no eternity because they don't believe there's any eternity. In other words, this week you're going to run into some people that really don't believe in eternity. They believe this life is all there is. All there is is now. And so what you want to do is to maintain your political influence, maintain the status quo if you're at the top of the pile, and just live as if there aren't any rights and wrongs. Just maintain your power. You're going to run into some people like that, some ruthless, cunning people that will lie and bribe. You're going to run into some very conservative, secular, political kind of people that all they're trying to do is to maintain their position in society. You're also going to meet some religionists. I mean, if you were to hear them speak on a Sunday morning, everything they say sounds really good. I mean, it's good doctrine. I mean, they say the right things. They talk about the spirit world. They talk about life after death they believe that there is a coming life and that life does go on after you die? Very orthodox. But they really don't believe in the reality of Jesus. In fact, they would murder the reality of Jesus given the opportunity. Today we're looking at the Apostle Paul moving through a mess of injustice. And I really want to stress this to you because one of the things that scares me to death is that you will put me And what I say in another category, in other words, that's Dave's religious thing. My religious thing is something that I do on Sunday morning, but Jesus doesn't really cut it in the living world. He doesn't cut it on the job site. He doesn't cut it in the office. He doesn't know what people are really like. And brothers and sisters, I'm very concerned that you understand that Jesus is the only one that really knows people. I don't know people. People fake me out all the time. But the more that we study together the Word of God, the more realistic you'll be in understanding the deceitfulness of your own heart and the hate of your own heart and the protectiveness of your own heart and how you will even be violent given certain circumstances to maintain yourself. And we need to come to grips with that. Because it's only if we let Christ turn the searchlight of His truth on every area of our life that we can escape from the cunning and the deceitfulness of our own lives. I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 22. We're going to be studying on trial for the resurrection. In fact, that title could summarize the rest of the book of Acts for us because the essence of Paul's trial, the reason that Paul is in jail, The reason that he's bound is not because he stole some old lady's purse when she was trying to go across the street. Paul was not on trial because he murdered somebody, although he did do that in his pre-converted days. But the reason the Apostle Paul is on trial in our passage at the end of the book of Acts is that he believed in the resurrection. And I going to stress that again because I want you to ask yourself the question. Living in today's world, facing the kind of people that you face? Do you believe in the resurrection? I want you to really think hard about that. Do you this morning, and do I this morning, actually genuinely believe that Christ rose again from the dead? Because that's what Paul's on trial for. But as we pick up the passage in verse 22, we're right in the middle of an ancient Near Eastern mob scene. Remember when we left Paul last week, he was on the steps of the Fortress Antonio. He was proclaiming his testimony. Remember I shared with you last week, whenever you're in doubt about what you should say about Christ, give your testimony, because you're an expert on it. The greatest PhD in all the world can't say, hey, you're wrong about that. Because you can say, oh no, I'm not. It's my testimony. And you're going to find as we go through these last chapters of Acts, every time Paul gets in a pinch, he gives his testimony. You're going to get bored with it. If you can ever get bored with Paul's testimony with lights coming from heaven and and just having the voice of Jesus himself speaking to him. But Paul, whenever he was on trial, gave his testimony. Now what happened is he gave his testimony. He got down to a point where he described being in the city of Jerusalem and he was praying in the temple, and he had a vision from God. And because Paul was an apostle, Paul was a prophet, that was something that periodically through his life, God, just like he talked to Samuel, just like he talked to Moses, God would speak to Paul. Now what God told Paul was, he said, Paul, you need to get out of here, because these people are not going to listen to you. And when we pick it up in verse 21, the Lord said to me, this is Paul speaking, the Lord said to Paul, in other words, Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. How many of you have ever had a gas can filled with two gallons of gas, and you took a match and you went, poom, threw it right in the gas tank? What happens? Don't try it. Kids, don't ever, 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 ever do that. Because it'll go kaboom! And it'll blow fire all over your garage and everything else. I know a fellow that was working on his car, and he was working underneath it, and he had a really bad smoking habit and he lit up and that was the wrong thing to do because the car and the garage and everything else went up. Well, that's what happened here. When Paul mentioned Gentiles, it was like throwing a it was like throwing a cigarette in a in a gas can. I mean the crowd just exploded. See, you think all this racial violence and all this hassle? It's something new. It isn't new. It's been going on ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And what the Jewish problem was in the first century, they believed they were the people of God. It's easy for us to think that. It's easy for us to say, I'm the people of God, and we are the people of God, but it's easy to go from saying, I'm the people of God, to you're not the people of God, and you can't become the people of God, because you're the wrong nation. You're the wrong race, you're the wrong color, I don't like the way you talk, I don't like your hair color, I don't like your clothes. You see, It's easy to go from, I'm the people of God, you're not the people of God, and you can't ever become the people of God unless you become like me. If you'll become like me, then you can become the people of God. Now the Jews were willing to have people become like them in the first century in order to be saved, in order to have salvation. What they didn't like what Paul said, Paul was going out and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What's the answer to all these race problems and this terrorism? There's only one thing that can bring people together. And that is for Jesus, not cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity stinks. It's the biggest hellhole you'll ever imagine. If you want to find Satan, look for him in a religionist robe. And all you need to do is study history to know that. Cultural Christianity is murderous, it's violent, it's prideful. If you don't think it is, all you have to do is travel with me to a pastor's conference with a bunch of religious pastors. And if you think your secular company is bad, if you think people vie for power in your secular company... You don't know anything. Because at least out there in the secular world, the rules are clearly stated. I'm a bum, you're a bum, let's get the bum. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I'm for me, you're for me, for you, and we're going to conflict, and I'll eat your lunch, you're given the opportunity. But at least the guy is honest, in a way. But religionists get together, and they're all pious. They all act like they love you, and they're gentle, and they're kind, and yet down underneath, all they're doing is living their power, and for influence, and for prestige, and to get ahead. Denominational conflicts are some of the most brutal conflicts you can ever imagine. So I'm not talking about cultural Christianity of being the answer to anything. It'll only produce more violence. What is the answer? People that genuinely believe that Christ is the Son of God. I mean they believe it deep down in here. They believe with all their hearts that Jesus Christ is coming back again. They believe that the Holy Spirit of God lives in their hearts. And they realize that without Him, they are the biggest scoundrels on earth. That only the blood of Calvary could forgive them. And it's only people that have come face to face with the cross and really dealt with it that can deal with integrity with their sin. And until all of us face our sin. We will be cunning and deceitful even after you come to Christ. Even after you've been born anew. If you don't live in that power, you can still be the worst scoundrel on earth. Don't ever forget that. What Paul was proclaiming is Christ is for everybody. As a church family, we need to really remember that. Brothers and sisters, as you sit in this room, Christ is not just for whites. He's not just for blacks. He's not just for orientals. He's not just for upper-middle-class upper Texans. He's not just for poor Texans. He's not just for Mexicans. He's not just for Caucasians. Have you ever stopped to think about the reality that on the cross of Calvary Jesus died for all men? Brothers and sisters, we all wrestle with racial prejudice. And if you say you don't, you do. And all I need to do is to take you plop right in the middle of a group that's totally different than you and you'll find out how prejudiced you are and I am. Man, when you take a white and just put him smack dab in the middle of a totally different culture, it's tough. And you'll find out there's feelings there. How do you overcome that? When we can start to look at people and realize, hey, Christ died for that person. When you look at a Jew, Christ died for that Jew. You look at a black man, Christ died for that black individual. You look at a Texan, you look at a Yankee, a New Yorker, Christ died for that person. That's the only way to overcome those deep, normal, from a human standpoint, prejudices. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, God sent me to proclaim salvation to the other side of the tracks from a Jewish perspective to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. But the Jews couldn't handle it. The Jews in the first century when Paul said that God was for Gentiles, they exploded. They couldn't believe it. They started ripping their clothes. They started throwing dirt up in the air. I mean, they had a full-scale riot on their hands. Look at it. Verse 22, this is rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Isn't that sedate and quiet? Can't you see this crowd? I mean, they're tearing off their clothes and throwing dirt in the air. The Roman commander sitting there. You see, the Roman commander, Lysias, probably couldn't understand Aramaic. So as far as he was concerned, Paul spoke to these men maybe a half an hour in Aramaic. He's not understanding at anything they're saying. And suddenly he says something in his speech and that crowd just explodes. They're ready to tear him to smithereens. And he's scratching his head. These Jews, what in the world are they doing? What in the world did he ever say? So he has his soldiers grab him. The commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged in verse 24 and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. This is a great justice procedure. Now, remember I told you the Bible deals with real life? If you think the Bible is just nice Sunday morning stuff and your faith is just nice Sunday morning stuff, if you're going to follow Paul's Christianity, you get into some very difficult circumstances. This is about the worst. Because the Romans, what they're doing here is they are stretching Paul out. They might have hung him from a hook from the ceiling. Sometimes the Romans did it that way. Sometimes they tied you up to a pole and they just stretched you out to get your back in a good position. And then they took a flagellum and what that was, is it was, a, it was all these leather thongs, and they wove pieces of bone, pieces of metal, into these leather straps, these long leather straps, like a bullwhip, only it's not braided. And then they put it onto a wooden handle, a short wooden handle. And they would question you with that. Now, we think police brutality gets bad in some parts of the world today. In the Roman Empire, a lot of prisoners never even made it through a Roman flagellation. Now, Paul had already been beaten by the Jews three times, 49 lashes. That was nothing compared to what they were about to do to Paul here. He had also had the lictors, which were big sticks that the Romans would use to beat you. He had, had that happen to him several times. But this is the first time that he faced the kind of brutal mutilation that the Lord Jesus experienced before the crucifixion. This is what our Lord underwent in the Fortress Antonio, the same place, same circumstances. The Lord Jesus went through this. Now as they had Paul all stretched out, he turned to the Roman soldier that's about ready to to let him have it, possibly even kill him. And he says, are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? And with that, the Roman soldier just about dropped his teeth because according to Roman law, a Roman citizen could not only be flagellated like that, he was not allowed to be whipped like that. He wasn't even allowed to be feathered without being tried, without having just causes put against him. So you can see the scurrying, the Fortis Antonio, the Roman soldier runs upstairs, gets Lysias, his commander... And he says in verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, what in the world are you doing? This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked him, tell me, are you, are you a Roman citizen? That's the inflection there. you got to be kidding, this little Jewish creep. I'm not saying that as my view, okay? you got to be careful these days. Things go a long way. By the way, that's how things get taken out of context. What I just said, just run that by Channel 8. You know, Dave works said so and so Sunday morning. That's how it works. So don't believe so much what you hear, these bits and clips and stuff like that. That was Lysias' attitude. He's saying, man, how could this little guy here ever be a Roman citizen? He said, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. You see, in the age of Claudius, and I want to just describe a little bit more the real world that Paul lived in. Claudius' wife wanted to have a little bit more money. She wanted to buy some nice dresses. She wanted to have a little bit more jewelry. She wanted to be able to have the women around her be dressed elegantly. So you know how she made her money? She sold Roman citizenship. That's probably how Claudius Lysias, this commander, got his citizenship. He bought it with a bribe. And so what he's saying is, man, Roman citizenship is really cheap these days. If a guy like Paul, this guy I dragged out of the temple could be a Roman citizen. And with that, Paul looked at him right in the eye and said, I was born a Roman. And with that, Paul had to be released. He was treated completely differently. I think there's some lessons that we can learn here from the way that Paul reacted. As we look at Paul, the Roman citizen. By the way, brothers and sisters, this concept of being a Roman citizen is going to be the fundamental turning point, the key that eventually is going to bring Paul to Rome. Now, I want you to understand something. Every one of you, by birth and by position in life, have certain advantages that God has given you. In other words, that God has brought you to certain places in your job. God has brought you in contact with certain people. And I want to share with you, the Lord wants you to be willing to give it all up for His sake. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 describes to us what he was raised like. Paul was an elite Jew, first of all. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a young man that was sent to Jerusalem when he was probably 12 or 13 years old, and he studied with the leading Jewish rabbi of the day. He trained with the elite number one scholar in all of Judaism. It was like he went to the most elite university in Judaism you could ever imagine. He not only had that from his Jewish heritage, but he was a Roman. Evidently, his grandfather, or maybe a great-grandfather, possibly helped Pompey when he took over Palestine in some way. One of Paul's parents or grandparents was able to earn Roman citizenship. So Paul, from a human standpoint, had tremendous social position. I mean, I was at the Maverick Inn the other night, and we were sitting there, and somebody said, hey, do you know who so-and-so is? They pointed down, and there was this guy that's a multi-multi-multi-millionaire. His daddy's a billionaire. He's made one oil deal after another, and my friend was sharing with me, you know, that father really set up his son. His son's smart, but man, who wouldn't be smart, you know, when you can make investments with millions upon millions of dollars? It's easy to get smart. When you have that kind of power and pull and prestige and your daddy can pick up the phone and get anybody you want to in the country just about. Well, that's a kind of not quite that much power, but Paul was from a family of great influence. He was willing for the sake of Christ to travel around the country beat up and abused and stoned because he really believed Christ was a lie. But he also wasn't naive as a believer. In other words, he was willing to give up his heritage. He was willing to give everything to Christ. But he was also a man who was as crafty as a serpent, though harmless as a dove. And in this situation, it was not legal for him to be flogged, and he wasn't stupid. And at this time, he used his Roman citizenship for advantage, for the glory of God. In fact, God is going to eventually use that Roman citizenship to take Paul on an expense-paid trip. It's kind of a rough trip, but he's going to make it to Rome. And Paul is going to stand before the emperor of the Roman Empire by Nero himself and tell him that Christ rose again from the dead. I believe that God is at work in all of our lives as well. God wants to use all of your advantages the positions in life that he leads you to, and he wants you in those positions, whether it be the university or General Dynamics or LTV or TXI or Gifford Hill or anywhere at all around, maybe working here in town, wherever it is, God wants to use your position of influence for you to testify that you genuinely believe that Christ rose again from the dead. Paul slept that night under guard. The next day they brought him to the Sanhedrin. And it's a very similar scene to the way that Christ was tried. Lysias, the Roman commander, is trying to find out what's going on. You know, what are the charges brought against Paul? And so the next day, he gathered together the Sanhedrin the Jews. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 22, the next day, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I want you to listen to that. Paul was able to stand before a Jewish Sanhedrin. And he was able to say, I have performed my duty to God with a good conscience to this day. I want to tell you something about Paul. Your conscience is not an infallible guide to right. Before Paul met Christ, his conscience caused him to believe that Christians were heretics. They needed to be killed. In other words, Paul was heinously wrong. In 1 Timothy, he'll say, I'm the greatest of sinners because of what I did to the family of God. But I also want you to know something about Paul. And I believe it's one of the fundamental reasons why he eventually became the kind of a man that he was. From a human perspective, Paul was a man who acted consistently with his conscience. Every one of you have a conscience. Kids, do you ever have a little voice inside of you saying, "Uh uh-uh, don't do it. Remember in Pinocchio? Who's the conscience in Pinocchio? Jiminy Cricket, remember that? And what does Jiminy Cricket try to do all the way through Pinocchio? He tries to get Pinocchio not to, not to lie and not to go and live just to make a lot of money and to become this big performer. He tries to get him to obey his daddy. Remember that? Jiminy Cricket was his conscience. We all have a conscience. Now, your conscience is not an infallible guide to what is right and what is wrong. For example, if I train one of my kids from the time they're little that it's totally wrong to eat ice cream cones. I mean, I hit them every time they eat an ice cream cone and I lecture them and I say, it's absolutely wrong to eat ice cream cones. They'll grow up thinking it's wrong to eat ice cream They'll probably eat them. But they'll think it's wrong emotionally in their heart. You can train a conscience to think something's evil when it's not. And a lot of us say, well, that means I don't have to listen to my conscience. As a believer, as a believer, every one of us in this room should have a good conscience. You see, when you receive Christ as your Savior, the Lord forgave you for your sins. And as you listen to His Holy Word, the Holy Spirit is honing your conscience. He's making your conscience a much more reliable guide to what is right right to what is wrong. In fact, that's why Paul will counsel believers even about areas that are not wrong. He'll say, now this area objectively, to eat this meat that was offered to idols, objectively it's not wrong. If you buy it in the marketplace and it was offered to idols, there's objectively nothing wrong with eating that. But Paul says this, if you think that it's wrong, if your conscience says it's wrong and you violate it, then it's wrong. And I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, a lot of us pride ourselves with how strong our conscience is and how things don't bother us. That's not a good thing. I want you to think this morning. This week, have you been acting inconsistently with your conscience? Had your conscience told you, you know, you really shouldn't do that. And you go ahead and do it anyway. Don't do that. Don't violate your conscience. It's one of the worst ways in the world to destroy yourself and it gives Satan a foothold. As we sit here this morning, based on the forgiveness that we have in Christ, we need to be able to say, I am acting with integrity. We need to be able to join with Paul. Paul was not being pompous here. He was not being prideful. In fact, in just a few verses, he's going to sin. He say, Paul sin? Yeah, Paul wasn't sinless like Christ. But Paul was a man that had integrity and truthfulness. When he did what he did, he did it consistently with his conscience. I hope you're that kind of a man. I hope you're that kind of a woman. Christ wants us to be that. What you're going to find, if you are a man with a good conscience, you're going to find out that people that do not have good consciences don't like it. And what happened here at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mount. Now Paul said to him, Paul got mad about this, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's a nice way to talk to the high priest. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Leviticus 19.15 said that a judge in Israel, a judge in Israel was to act impartially and justly. When Ananias commanded Paul to be struck, right in the middle of his defense, Paul had just barely begun to defend himself, which was an Israelite's honor. It was his right. From ancient times, God had set it up, the accused could defend himself before the judges of his people. And to be struck like that for a Jew is even stronger than for us. For us to be struck like that, it's kind of something we're going to pound him right back. It's usually the initiation of a fight. But in this kind of a setting, it was like calling him the worst name you can imagine. It was like calling him just a dog and rejecting him. And no accused person was to be treated like that. The high priest had broken the laws of God. Now, Paul at this time, for some reason, did not know that Ananias was the high priest. This was not an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. It was a hastily called meeting. We don't know whether Ananias had a different garb on than he would ordinarily wear. Paul had only sporadically come to Jerusalem the last 25 years, and the high priest had changed. This is not the Ananias that tried the Lord. Caiaphas is gone. It's a totally different high priest. For some reason, Paul at this point didn't know who he was talking to. And so he lashes out and called them, like the Lord called the Pharisees, you're a hypocrite. You're a whitewashed wall. And the idea here is for those of you working in construction, it's like you built a terrible wall. I mean, the mortar stinks. There's cracks all over it. It's terrible. I mean, if you lean on it, it's going over. What you do is paint it nice. You know, put the plaster all over it, Jean. You know, get it all taped and bedded exactly right, and then paint it. And it looks perfect. But it's going to go over. That's what the idea of a whitewashed wall. It's a wall that's crumbling. And it's going to cave in. And you whitewash it so it looks really good. And Paul says, Ananias, that's what you're like. You're a religionist that looks really good. But you're going to cave in. You're going to be cut off from your people. When the people standing next to Ananias heard Paul speak like that, they said, you dare to insult God's high priest like that? And notice how quick Paul, when he realized what had happened, he said, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Exodus chapter 22, I think it's verse 28, tells us not to curse the ruler of our people. And I want you to see, Paul unwittingly broke the Scripture, broke the revealed Word of God. How did he react? As soon as he realized that he had unwittingly, even though he wasn't aware of what he was doing, as soon as, as it was pointed out to him that he had done wrong, he was quick to apologize and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. In essence, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I was not aware, and it was wrong for me to do that. That's the kind of people that we need to be. And I want you to see the tension in the scene. Paul's by a court at a court, He's being tried unjustly. He's being tried by a high priest who's a real, I mean, unbelievable hypocrite. I'll tell you more about him in closing in a minute. And yet Paul is still acting with integrity. Only the Holy Spirit can help us to do that. But I also want you to see that though Paul was imperfect, though he made a mistake in this setting, he did not let his mistake deter him from being a witness to the resurrection. And so as soon as he cleared up the matter, he went right on the offensive again, and he said, Brothers, I am being tried as a Pharisee. He said, I am a Pharisee. And what I am being tried on is the hope of Israel, that the Messiah would come, and in the resurrection. Well, with that, the place exploded. The Pharisees and the Sadducees started fighting, and Paul possibly was right in the middle, and it seems that what happened, the Sadducees came from this side, the Pharisees came from this side, and they started pulling on him. The Romans had to jump in there to get Paul from being torn to smithereens. And so the passage ends with a Sanhedrin in an uproar, arguing over the resurrection. The Pharisees are shouting out, this man, possibly he's seen an angel or a spirit. Man, we shouldn't, we shouldn't try him. The Sadducees are going, yes, but he's against Israel. He's anti-Semitic. He's anti-the Jews. And they get into terrible conflict. There's three groups that are involved in this Sanhedrin. And there's three groups that could very well be here today. One of the groups is Ananias, the high priest. Let me tell you about Ananias. Ananias got to power by bribing. It's a good way. book of Proverbs says you want to get ahead in life? Bribe. You'll get killed in the end. But it will work. The Bible, if you want to get ahead in your company, bribe, cheat, lie, you'll climb right up the ladder. And then you'll be dead. Because God will judge you. Because that's not the way the universe works in the long run. I want you to realize the Bible is very hard nosed about what people are like and the kind of people you meet are going to fit in with the kind of people in the Bible. Ananias came to power by bribing. He gave lots of money to Jewish conspirators. He gave lots of money to Romans. He kept everybody pleased. The tithes, in other words, like you all give money. This is what Ananias did. Like, you all will give money today. I don't have the foggiest idea what anybody gives. And I do not reach in and figure out how much I'd like for the week. Now, there's pastors that do that. And if you are so dumb that you ever get involved in a church where a guy does that, you deserve what you get. You're stupid. I know churches don't give their money, and the pastor handles everything. That's absurd. Man, I wouldn't trust myself for a minute with that kind of a setup. And neither should you. Okay? Ananias controlled the tithe. You know what he did? The money that the Jewish people gave for their priests in the countryside, he took it. He stole it and kept it for himself. To bring it up in the modern times, he drove a Rolls Royce or a, or a beautiful Mercedes. He lived in a beautiful upper, up, way, way, upper, 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 middle-class palace up in the elite section of Jerusalem. He rubbed shoulders with all the Roman officials, all the Jewish officials, and he did it all by stealing the money that the country priest should have had. Nice fellow, right? He would lie. He would bribe. He got in a conflict with the Samaritans. He went all the way to Rome and bribed Roma five years before this event took place. That's the man that Paul was standing by. So don't tell me that I'm naive. I am naive, but not the Bible. You might meet an Ananias this week. A guy that cheats, bribes, steals, butters people up. And you might say, you know, you as a believer say, man, poor little old me. Look at that guy. Man, look at the prosperity that he had. That's what people were saying about 58 and 59 about Ananias. Let me tell you how he ended up. In 66 AD, the Jewish zealots decided they'd had enough of Rome. they set up a revolt. The whole city of Jerusalem went into an uproar. The zealots took over the city, and Ananias was groveling around in an aqueduct. That's a sewer-like. He was hiding in a sewer. The zealots wouldn't quit. They searched the aqueduct. They, They searched the Jewish sewer system, and Josephus told us they hauled him out, and they murdered him. And so much for getting ahead. But he got ahead. They got his head. And I want every one of you to realize the wicked prosper for a time, but what did Paul say? Paul looked at him and said, you're a white-washed sepulcher. You're going to be cut off by your from your people. When I tell you something. Some of you say, I'm not sure I want to go with Jesus. I'm not sure I want to live this Bible stuff. It's asking too much. Please don't believe that. Jesus is the only one to go with because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's a loving shepherd of Galilee, but he's also a sovereign, mighty king. And in the end, he brings all things to justice. When Paul stood before Ananias, it looked like Ananias was on the top of the world. In less than ten years, he was dead, cut off by his people. Two other groups were there, the Sadducees, The Sadducees didn't believe. Some of you say, well, Dave, I'm not really sure I can believe this spiritual stuff. It's hard for me to believe in angels and spirits. In fact, if I'm really honest, you know, as I study science and I learn all the things that we're discovering these days, and to be really honest with you, I really think that this life is all there is. I think Carl Sagan and Asimov and some of these guys, Carl Mishner, that really doubt that there's life after death, I think they're probably right. I mean, I come to church because my mom and dad want me to come to church. But if I'm really honest, I think you really need to be a man of the world or a woman of the world and just live for now. Well, lest you think that you're joining a new group, that's what the Sadducees believed. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They just believed now. This life is all there is. You live as long as you got and you die like a dog, and that's all they believed. That was the group that Paul stood beside. Brothers and sisters, that was also the group that called for Jesus to be crucified. And in 70 AD, God judged that group. When the Romans came down, there was no longer a Sadducean party because they gambled wrong. They thought they were so brilliant. They thought they were so smart. They thought they could play Roman Israel and hold everything in balance and keep stealing from the people and keep trying to maintain their status quo. And God said, no, you can't. You crucified my son, and they're going to be justice done. And the Roman legions came down, and there was no longer a Sadducean party. But the third group is the worst group of all, the hardest group to reach for Christ, the hardest group to get them to listen. They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the popular religionists. If you were living in Israel in the time of Christ, you most certainly would love Pharisees. You would think they were a little bit weird because they were always washing their hands, always wearing certain kind of clothes, always going to you know, the synagogue, very religious. But you would have liked them. Just like Texans like ministers. Texans have a, have, you know, they, they like ministers, but they don't like ministers. But they're part of the culture. You know, when you get married in Texas, you really need a minister. You know, whether you believe what they say or not, that doesn't really make a lot of difference. You need a minister to get married in Texas. Where I was raised, I wasn't so. You just get married by a justice of a peace. It wasn't part of the culture, really. We were about 100 years farther into secularization. But down here, it's still true. In fact, it's hard for me not to get caught in that. People really like ministers. You know, the minister. The guy that takes care of the religious area of life. You know, the one that reminded from time to time, there's a sweet by and by. We even love all the songs. Part of the culture is, in the sweet by and by, and precious Lord, take my hand. The country western singers can sing it better than the gospel singers. You understand what I'm saying? If you'll get the feel of that, that's the way the Pharisees were. The Pharisees would teach you on a Sunday morning, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life after death. I believe you're a good person. You'll go to live in the life after death. That's what they would teach. Everybody loved them. There's only one problem. They didn't really believe that Christ Jesus rose again from the dead. You see, they were willing to believe, theoretically, there's a resurrection from the dead. But when it happened in history, they didn't believe that. I want to close with this, but it's your difference between eternal life and eternal death. Listen, I want to ask you, do you really believe in the resurrection? Or is it just a nice idea in your head? You know what a belief in the resurrection is? If Blair and his accident on Friday night, if he had not been taken to Baylor, and they did not find out that his spleen was bleeding, there's a good possibility that mommy and daddy could have taken him home that night and in the middle of the night he would have been gone. That's what the surgeon at Baylor said. If he had not found out, it was just a whole series of events that caused some doctors to realize there's something wrong with the spleen and not just a foot injury. But let's suppose that a terrible scenario would have happened. They wouldn't have found it out. You know what belief in the resurrection of Christ means? It means a little boy it's taken instantaneously to be with the Savior. It means that if you're a believer and you go out of here today and you're in an accident, it means instantaneously you go to be with the Savior. Now we run away from those ideas, but please don't run away from those ideas because it's the stuff of real life. It is real life. Don't run into your rock music. Don't run into drugs. Don't run into having a good time. Don't run into beauty and clothes and money. Don't run away from death. It's reality. It could happen. But if you know the Savior, it's okay. Because Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus died. His body stopped living. He was cold as ice. He was a corpse. And they anointed his body. They um embalmed him. They put him in a grave. And he was dead, as dead, as dead can be. As dead as any of your loved ones and mine. As dead as my mom was. You understand that? You've all looked at it. Almost every one of you here. You looked at death. Jesus was dead, dead, dead. But today, he's not dead. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. That's what Paul believed. Paul wasn't some teacher teaching over at SMU that said, it's a nice thing to have a philosophy of resurrection. Let's talk about the biblical theology of of resurrection. And you say, sir, what happened on the third day? Suppose I was there with a Channel 8 mini cam and I'm sitting there, and I went in the empty tomb, what would I see? If I was in the upper room with the disciples, what would I see? And what the Bible is saying, what you would see is Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead. Is that what you all believe? I hope it is. That's what the Scripture teaches. Brothers and sisters, that'll lift you right up from a cultural Christianity. It will give you life It'll help you to be able to face death and the challenges of this life. We need to join with Paul. The Ananias of the world will go their way. The Sadducees of this world will go their way. You're going to meet them. The Pharisees of this world will go away. The religionists, where it's just philosophy, but they don't believe it really happens. I pray with all my heart, we'll be in a fourth group. The single man, Paul, all by himself, saying, Sir, he's alive. Sirs, Jesus of Nazareth is alive and he is my savior. If you can say that this morning, if in the bottom of your heart the Holy Spirit has moved you to say, Jesus, I believe you are my savior, you're alive, then you're a child of God. If you can't, why don't you believe?